This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. Last time we spoke about how the brain works and what we can do with science to assess and affect the brain. We then spoke about how the brain can be and in fact is being used as a weapon in our context, a weapon on the battlefield. With this episode, we dive into the ethics of this brain science. And I'm joined again in that conversation by Dr. James Giordano. Dr. G, welcome back to Radio Stockdale. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So you're very well known in this field, the field I'll call new neuroethics. What is this field and what's its aim and its efforts? Well, you know, it, it, it's relatively new in that it does represent uh, a, a type of ethics, but it's a type of ethics that's focal to the brain sciences as such. This field, neuroethics, as, as a titular field, has been around since the early 2000s. The term neuroethics had been used by Adina Roskies, by William Sapphire, the late William Sapphire of the New York Times, but it really caught the public attention in the early 2000s. And as such, it caught on like wildfire. That said, the field is, is distinct, I think, from other areas of ethics, uh, perhaps the only one as close might be genetic ethics, in that it provides something of a, a meta-ethical construct. Let me explain. There are really two foci. There are two areas of interest of neuroethics. Uh, the first is the, the ethics of brain science and its uses. In other words, ethics as applied to research and uses of brain science and medicine, public life, and as we talked here, military and national security applications. But the other is somewhat more colloquial in the, the ethics of how the brain does ethics and the neuroscience of that ethics. So in other words, this is your brain doing moral thought. Now, that's certainly not new. We can look at moral philosophy. We can look at moral psychology. And we can fold those into that larger envelope. But what neuroethics in that focus has done as it's harnessed the brain sciences to try to get a deeper understanding of the way humans and perhaps other species as well engage in that rational cogitation that leads to what they believe to be moral and then codified ethical and perhaps even legal decisions and actions in a variety of contexts. Now, that said, my contention, as, as several others, is you really can't do one without the other. I mean, think about it. If you're using the brain sciences to try to understand the way we as humans and other species and perhaps even computers engage in moral thought and ethical action, well, then you have to try to make sure that you're doing that neuroscience in ways that are correct, in other words, technically correct, and ethically, morally, and legally sound, which, although it seems like circular reasoning, does actually provide a meta construct where one hand washes the other, so to speak, and they both sort of wash your face. But let me be clear here. Can I approach this field laterally? Meaning, can I just come into it sideways without having a foundation? Do I need a foundation that goes back to a Western philosophy or Near East or Far Eastern philosophy, Native American? I mean, do, can, does Aristotle have anything to say here? Well, Michael, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, there have been those, most notably my, my colleague, Dr. Neil Levy, who has argued that neuroethics represents a, a new way of doing ethics. 
I don't fully agree with that, but I think it does demand a new approach. And uh, what you said really opens up, if you will, Pandora's jar and both the goodies and the gremlins emerge. I think in understanding the way we as humans engage moral thought decisions and actions and then codify them within our individual structures, collective structures, communities, politics, it has to really entail and therefore obtain a broader perspective on what we are. I mean, it, it can't simply be an older Western ethics. It, it simply cannot be that. And although there are plenty of principles, the idea, for example, from Aristotle about aretaics doing good and doing right and eudaimonia, what it means to thrive and, and flourish, well, they're relevant. But let's face it, the world is a big place and different people come from different cultures and different times. And those different times and different cultures have different needs, values, philosophies, and ethics. And therefore, if neuroscience is going to be global, as it is, and if that neuroscience applies to each and all of us on this globe, as it does, the neuroethics must be cosmopolitan in its orientation and its views and its discourses. So you propose these new tasks and principles in neuroethics. What are they and how or why are they important? Well, I think building upon existing ethics is important. I mean, if we were going to take something of a Venn diagram and break things out, you have overall ethics, the, the systematized approach to understanding moral thoughts and actions in particular contexts, various people, circumstances, etc. That's ethics. But then anything that deals with the life sciences or the natural sciences, and in some cases, the technical sciences gets us into the area of bioethics, literally bios being the science of understanding life. And neuroscience certainly falls within that purview. And then a subcategory of that might be research and clinical ethics. And here, once again, neuroethics can be brought to the fore. So yeah, neuroethics is a subdiscipline of ethics for sure and utilizes ethical constructs and principles but I think it must remain a pace, if not a bit ahead of what the science and technology can actually do. Ethics need not necessarily be the, the proscription or prohibition of what not to do, but rather should be much more proactive, should chart a course, should be engaged in certain speculations based upon realistic probabilities of what the future portends, and then should guide, not just restrict and govern and restrict, but really should prescribe certain prescriptions. Do this, do these things. Be careful where you're putting your feet, not to impede your forward progress, but to maintain steady balance as we're moving forward, because move forward, we will. So I think that in that regard, it becomes important to understand that there may be some new principles that have a, a broader context and a far more, therefore, content focal. My colleague John Shook and I have proposed a number of neuroethical principles that we feel could be cosmopolitan. In other words, entertain the, the broad, if you will, fabric of brain science on the global stage, and yet still be applicable in particular local constructs and circumstances. These principles include self-creativity, the fact that we can utilize the brain sciences to understand ourselves and to make ourselves better. And along with that, a second principle would be empowerment utilizing the brain sciences to enhance our capabilities, optimize our performances in those ways that are individually and collectively beneficial and sanctioned. But along with that, we've argued very strongly for non-obsolescence. 
Not only where individuals are made perhaps obsolescent by the capability of others, in other words, where you're now getting into what the French philosopher Michel Foucault referred to as biopower and biopolitics, but there is indeed a cognizance of that as technology marches on, we shouldn't leave anyone behind, so to speak. By the same token, we should have social provisions and civic provisions so that there are adequate distributions of those relative goods to those who need them, and in some cases, to those who want them. And this gets into some of the macro and microeconomics of neuroscience and technology as, as distributively just within populations. And that last point is, is key, because the final principle that we argue for is citizenship. In other words, using the brain sciences in terms of both the knowledge that it provides and the capabilities that it obtains in ways that allow cooperation, collaboration. And in some cases, of course, recognizing what we are as humans, coopetition, cooperative competition. And that takes it to the next level, which is really the, the idea of policy and politics and how they will embrace the brain sciences and capabilities. You know, I like where you're going with this, but let me try this one other way. I think I'm hearing you say that this field really encompasses what I'll call a multivariant equation. And what I mean by that is our concept of biology, in a sense, has changed because we understand the science of biology a little bit more. Uh, we're not as mystical as we used to be. I guess we really are, but we actually have some scientific basis for the mysticism that we might actually still embrace. What's changing here? Is it the science? Is it the technology? And or is it the ethics? Yes, it is. And I think that this this concept of both philosophy and ethics remaining apace and in those ways complementary to the science is certainly not new. And we can look back to some of the work of, of Fritz Jahr, uh, essentially the father of contemporary bioethics in the early 1920s. We can look to some of the work of Albert Schweitzer, I mean, the, the noted humanitarian who's claimed that there's no way that philosophy and ethics can ignore science, but was guided. We can go further back. We can look to Goethe, who said that really philosophy asks key questions, science answers those questions, and ethics guides how, how both to do the philosophy and also how to apply the science. And I think that that becomes a reciprocal relationship. If, if ethics is too proscriptive, don't do this, don't do that, I think what tends to happen is that it ignores the fact that in a multicultural world, those things will get done that there are those sort of trajectories towards progress. And our goal here is not to adopt a, a simple precautionary principle, because let's face it, after you let the proverbial cat out of the bag, it's not a question of if things will go wrong. Things will go wrong. By simple diversity of use and application, things will go wrong. There'll be variations in the way people or groups apply certain types of science and technology. What I define as good might not be uniform or comport with yours, etc. So it really is a question of understanding that more than anything else, you need a preparative principle. You need one that suggests, well, these are certain scenarios. These are the realities that exist. Don't be in, in any way performative and make things up. I mean, science fiction is wonderful. And I, like anybody else, I think likes really good science fiction. But realistically, although there's a place for neuroscience fiction, and we can have that discussion subsequently because I think there really is, I think there's also an ethical obligation in neuroscience fiction. In other words, it has to become more realistic to be able to provide a setting so that people can understand what's real and what isn't. 
because there's plenty of things in the brain sciences that are now, that are current, that are real, that are clearly the focus of ethics that need to be focused upon. So I think to sort of sum that up, what we're really seeing is that the science and technology must lead and they must lead in those ways that science and technology very often evolve from itself as the interesting dance between tools and theory and theory and tools. And the ethics must remain a pace of that. It must acknowledge what the science and technology can do. And it must also acknowledge the reality of what we as the developers and users of science and technology are capable of doing. In other words, it it asks the, the prudential questions. Given what we can do, what should we do? And once we, whoever we are, define what we should do, can it be done given the civic institutions, political institutions, and global context that exists? And if not, what do we then need to do to make it so? You mentioned um, diversity. One of the things that our ancestors probably didn't realize, in a sense, is the incredible diversity and cultures that we all share on this planet. Now, because we're a little bit smaller because of technology, because of communication, because of travel or what have you, we actually now do touch each other in much closer ways. And in the last podcast, we talked about the multinationality of the research and the applications in brain sciences. How has that influenced neuroethics? Oh, I I think that the influence should be profound. And is becoming ever more, at very, very least, a consideration, if, if not a context for application. I mean, if we look at where brain sciences are being advanced with multi-billion currency efforts, we're seeing certainly the United States, the European Union, China, Russia, a number of South American countries, Australia, New Zealand, Japan. But if we look at those cultures, those cultures not only have certain political differences in the current world stage, but also have distinct historical differences. And those historical differences have given rise to distinct philosophies. In some cases, there are overlapping constructs and principles, but in others, those philosophies represent longstanding needs and values of the peoples who've been involved. And what this does is create a multi-perspectival orientation. And realistically, as nations and their inherent cultures become more capable in science and technology, and in in this situation, brain sciences and technology, they foster, they garner, and I would think that they demand more respect and more acknowledgement as they come to these international discourse tables, whereby these debates and discussions, in some cases resolutions about what neuroscientific research and applications are going to be fostered and supported how those things are going to be put into use and how they're going to be guided and governed, realistically, it takes many voices. And my perspective on this, along with my colleague, John Shook, and a number of others, both here in the United States and and internationally, is that there is that need for greater diversity at those discourse tables in ways that are not just discursive, but that are positively dialectic. In other words, where you have two perspectives that may not necessarily align, but the purpose going in is to create something that was larger than both, where you have perspective A and perspective B. And through this dialectical process, you get both antithesis and then ultimately some synthesis. So what we've called for is a synthetic neuroethics, a culturally synthetic neuroethics that 
in its synthesis is also syncretic. In other words, it brings together a variety of beliefs about the human condition, about the human predicament, about perspectives of what is good or not good, acceptable and not acceptable, and forges them, if you will, in, in a new cauldron, literally a melting pot of ideas that preserves the integrity of some of those concepts, but then also provides guidelines and certain governances for the way those constructs are applied in various contexts in the reality of the 21st century world stage. What do you see as a viable path forward in guiding this more global engagement of brain sciences, especially when it comes to medical all the way to military? Well, you know, that's, that is the gazillion dollar question, Michael. I mean, I, I think it, it took us, what, a few minutes to have this discussion and to kind of lay down, if you will, the, the sentinel and salient points of, of how the field would necessitate some new dimensions and new applications and ethics. But to actually do the work, uh, that's going to be laborious. I mean, in some cases, certain predispositions need to be hung up, need, need to be put on a shelf. And in other cases, they need to be broached and discussed. And there needs to be not only, as I say, discussion and dialectic, but in some cases, compromise. There are a number of paths forward. In some of our work, we've provided aims that would engage some form of reflective equilibrium, whereby reflecting on the nature of the situation comes to some balance of, of what may be important for consensus and dissensus. Various approaches such as some of the work of John Rawls, the, the philosopher John Rawls, and his approach to something called mini-max or maximin, which is minimizing certain burdens or risk while maximizing benefits and also providing maximum capability to those who may be minimally represented, I think also have particular value in these types of discourses. But ultimately, I think what it's going to take is effort. And, you know, as the old maxim goes, realistically, the, the juice is going to be worth the squeeze. Because I think if we fail to do that, We've certainly fallen victim to at least folly, and I think perhaps more than that. Failure to acknowledge what the brain sciences teaches about us as humans in the multicultural dynamic of the 21st century will also be a failure to appropriate and I think to appreciate the capability that the neurosciences afford us to become more communicative, more collaborative, and more cooperative. As I like to say, you know, there, there's great power in them, them neurons. Let's not waste it. Dr. James Giordano, thank you for joining us on Radio Stockdale. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.